Welcome to Clearly Quaker, an ongoing series of podcasts by Salem Quarterly Meeting, part of the Religious Society of Friends. Salem Quarterly Meeting is an association of seven Southern New Jersey Quaker meetings within Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. My name is Lisa Stewart Garrison, and I'm here from Greenwich Friends Meeting. Um, for those of you that are tuning in via webinar, we are here at Woodstown Friends Meeting in Southern New Jersey for Salem Quarterly Meeting, which is a gathering of all seven Quaker meetings in the southern part of New Jersey to worship together with an attention for business and opportunities for shared learning. And I want to welcome all of you in this room and on the webinar for today's program. We welcome those of you who are members of Joellen's family and our many communities and those of you who may be meeting her for the first time. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Joellen L. Jones is a practicing defense attorney and a trustee of the Cumberland Bar Association, Cumberland County Bar Association, where she serves as co-chair of the diversity committee. She is also a member of the Association of Black Women Lawyers of New Jersey, where she chairs the Community Outreach Committee. A member of the National Association of Criminal Defense Attorneys, Joellen serves on that organization's Diversity Committee and Decarceration Committee, respectively. She's a member of the Committee for Diversity, Inclusion, and Community Engagement for Vicinage 15, and a trustee for M25, a faith-based organization in Bridgeton, which has initiated numerous programs to address the needs of vulnerable populations, at least one of which has been adopted as a statewide model. Joellen is a member of Trinity African Methodist Church, a missionary with the Margaret A. White Missionary Society, and the Gouletown Area Director of the Young People's Division of the AME Church. A fun-loving, family-oriented, loyal, and outspoken individual with an extraordinarily generous heart enormous personal flair, and a courageous sense of leadership. Joellen L. Jones remains true to the lessons she has learned from her own life experience. Her deep commitment to truth-telling and bettering her communities remains steadfast. She prompts us to look and look again at tired social norms and platitudes by asking, what is justice? What does it really mean? How can we break through the same old conversations? Without further ado, it is my great honor to introduce to you our speaker and presenter, Joellen L. Jones. Good afternoon, everyone. First, I'd like to thank you for sharing your space with me this afternoon. I hope that we all walk away which is a little bit of more knowledge and a little bit more understanding of other experiences, maybe some different than our own. Just to kind of go back a little bit, um, Lisa, thank you for having me here. And Lisa said I'm a defense attorney. So throughout my education, especially in, I went to Fairfield Township Schools, African-American history was something that was so readily engraved in our education. It's so funny to me that when sometimes I hear about kids and they talk about they didn't learn this in school, I'm thinking, I learned that in first grade or second grade or even kindergarten. We used to have this thing called the Black History Bowl. And as a young person, when you got your 
back in the day when I was in school, they would put like your school assignments, your class assignments in the paper. So you knew who was going to be in a class with you. And we looked at for two things. We looked for the smart kids who were in the class with us because of the Black History Bowl and the kids who were athletic because the kids who were athletic will help us win field day. And both of those events ended up with a Big John's pizza party. So the first time that last came out, like who are the smart kids and who are the athletic kids? And to be honest, we would ask kids to stay home if they weren't the smart kid, like don't come to school today at Black History Bowl. And if you weren't athletic, don't come to school today at a field trip. Because <laughs> we want this, right? We want this. And through those experiences, I learned so much about how the law changed and how the law affected um, what was going on in society at the time and how a lot of times a lot of battles were fought in the courtroom and I became slightly obsessed with people the, the likes of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and I was like that's what I want to do I want to change the community I live in I understand why going to school in Fairfield Township when I was in the earlier grades and the school was in Farron that we had a more diverse classroom and then when this came time to go to what they call Town School, which used to be the predominantly black school, that a lot of my white classmates kind of disappeared. And I learned about just how this all is tied into history. And I learned about things as far as um, Brown versus Topeka Board of Education. But before that, there were a lot of things that went against what we see now today, being able to intermingle. And because of that, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to stand on the backs of people who are great and who are able to make a difference. And that's what I decided to do. And in sixth, second grade, I made a t-shirt for Martin Luther King. And it said, I have a dream. And I had a dream to be a lawyer. And little did I know that my mother saved that t-shirt. It actually had it framed for me when I graduated from law school. And most attorneys have all their different degrees up on their walls and in their office. And in my office is that t-shirt, a reminder to me every day of that little girl who wanted to fight for justice in second grade. And I stayed fast to that dream until December of 1998. On December 29th, 1998, my life forever changed. My mom had two children, me and my brother, who was 14 months older than me, who I loved dearly. And he truly was my best friend. And that day, four days after Christmas, started as any other day. We were excited. We were home on spring break, I mean, on Christmas break, and we just were excited about what we were going to do. And I had to work. I had a part-time job in the mall, and he had part-time jobs. And we were talking about all the things that we saw because we were getting to that age where we were now becoming young adults. I had just turned 18 in November. My brother had turned 19 in, in September. And, you know, like most young people think that we're adults now. We're grown-ups. Little do I know now that grown-up being is not that fun. But at 18 and 19, it seemed like the best things you could do in the world. And we were also excited because during that time, Cumberland Regional High School had what they call was the Colt Classics. And at the Colt Classics, we would all, everybody, basketball teams from all over would come and play. And we would be so excited about everybody coming and playing. And I was going with my friends, and my brother was going with his friends, and we couldn't wait for that night to come. I remember arriving at the Colt Classics and meeting my brother. And at the time, the girls' games were still going on. The boys' games hadn't started. My brother looked at me and said, yo, you got to be careful. Those guys from Violin are here. And I'm thinking, like, I don't care. And I was more the rowdy one, 
right? You ask my mom, you look at me wrong, I wanted to fight, I, I had a fight in me, and now I do the same thing in the courtroom, and I just don't do it physically anymore. I had that, that fight, that drive in me. And I'm like, okay, don't worry about it. And as we're standing in the hallway, we hear somebody yelling, there's a fight in the hallway. And we look around, and one of my brother's friends wasn't there anymore. And we're like, oh my gosh, it's probably JL fighting. So we run into the hallway, and we break up the fight, and my brother goes over to the state police because he's being asked to leave. He said, look, I drove my friend here. Can you let me get the rest of my friend together? I don't want to send him outside by himself. And they say, okay. They let him round up. He tells me, round, up, round your friends up. Go ahead and leave. Meet us at the house. We'll go back home. We'll play cards. We'll have fun. We'll just go back to the house. And that was our plan. I remember getting my friends together, and as I'm walking out of school, I watched RJ and his friends drive off in his car. And we finally get in our car, and there's two ways to go home. And for whatever reason, something in my spirit said, you need to go to the right, don't go straight. And I drive, and there's no problem, and I look up, and when I'm driving, I see my brother's car to the side of you, to the side. And I'm laughing in my head, thinking his car done broke down again. Because, you know, you're 18, 19, you got whatever car they gave you, and sometimes those cars don't run as smoothly as you want them to run. So I pull up, and I look, and I get out of the car, and his friends are out of the car, and I hear them say, somebody shot him. He got shot. And I remember thinking, like, they shot who? That doesn't make sense. And I go into the car, and RJ's laying in the car, and it wasn't like something I saw on the movies. There wasn't blood gushy from everywhere. I'm thinking he's going to be okay. I hug him, tell him he loves him. We put him in my car. My friends drive him home. I call my mom to, back to the house and I look and my, the officer that pulled up was my cousin. And he takes us to the hospital and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. What happened? In that short period of time from the time I said I'll see you at the house to now my brother is now being taken to the hospital because he's been shot. And I get there, and we're all at the we're at the hospital. His friends are there. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. They're trying to tell me, but nothing's just making sense to me. Some time passed, probably felt like forever. And my mom said when she got to the hospital, I spoke to her, and I don't remember saying anything to her. But I remember just sitting there waiting. And at some point, they took my mom out, and then they took at the time her husband out. And I kept saying like, "Well, where is he? I want to see my brother." Allow me to see my brother. I was like, well, where's my mom? I want to see my mom. And I go into this little room and my mom is crying. And I remember thinking, like, it's okay. Like, he may look bad, but he's okay. Why are you crying? What's going on? And she's just screaming and she's crying and she's upset. And I'm still, at that moment, nothing had kind of processed for me. And the nurse said to me, he's gone. He died. And I remember thinking, what do you mean he's gone? And I remember yelling out, you killed my brother. Like he wasn't, I, I hugged him, I saw him. There's no way that less than an hour or so before that, that he was alive. And you're telling me now my best friend for 18 years is no longer here. The person who just earlier today we were making plans about when I graduate from school and maybe us going to the same college and us getting an apartment together and what would like, the person who for months leading up to that, every Wednesday we went to dinner at Red Lobster. Every Wednesday, somehow I ended up paying, but I was okay with that. But that was our ritual, every Wednesday, and that person is no longer here.
I didn't understand. And life forever changed for me. And we went through the process of going through the legal system and prosecutors and judges and defense attorneys. And in that moment, I said, I can no longer do this. I don't want to be a part of this system. This system doesn't seem right for anybody. It doesn't, I, it doesn't feel right for me. It doesn't feel right for the defendant. No, no, nobody to me, nothing's happening. Nobody cares. And my brother is no longer here. I then, it went, I then began Roman University and I was exposed to the Southern Poverty Law Center. And in that moment, I said, that's where it came from. So I decided I wanted to do law again. But during that course of the time, I still had this hurt, this pain that was inside of me. My brother wasn't there. He wasn't there for my high school graduation or my college graduations or when I gave birth to my daughter. My life had forever changed and I was angry for so very long. Some years later, we get a call from the prosecutor's office that said, the young man who had pled guilty in RJ's death was finally called post-conviction relief, which means he was trying to get something changed because he said he didn't understand. So in New Jersey, um, our legislation changed. We have a lot of things that they call mandatory minimums. Like if you do certain crimes, you'll just spend a certain time incarcerated. And that was also, a lot of that was newer. So at the time that he pled guilty, a new law, which is called 85%, had just kind of taken back. But his attorney didn't really properly explain that to him. So there were some issues going on. So he had filed for a post-conviction relief. At the time, by that time, I was in law school. And I was working part-time with the public defender's office and as an intern. And I remember calling to the prosecutor's office and saying, I want to come and talk to you. I remember getting there. And asking all these questions, and nobody knew the answers. The person who spoke to me couldn't even tell me who the prosecutor was who was handling the case. And I remember thinking, like, are you serious? You knew I was coming. <laughs> you, you knew I was about to come through your door, and you didn't even prepare to be able to answer basic questions for us. And I remember being so angry and so mad. And I remember coming in for his post-conviction relief hearing and sitting there with my family members. At the time, the prosecutor, who was at the time, who was working there, came in and said, "Let me t tell me about RJ. And I remember thinking, like, you don't need to know about RJ. We're 15 years late. Like, you don't need to know about RJ. Maybe you should have asked about him in 1998. But right now, I don't want to tell you about my RJ. I, wanna, I want you to explain to me what's going on, what's happening. And they came and they said, well, we made these changes. And I'm like, so why are we even here? You've already made a decision on what you want to do. So why are we even here? Then time passed and we started getting calls from what they call like a buying, like a, a victim's link. And it would say to us, this particular person is so many days within his release, so many days in his release. And then when the day came that he was being released, I remember sitting there with my mom and my dad and my daughter and just thinking, like, he's now free. What does this mean for my life? Because very candidly, for all that time leading up to that, I had plotted in my head what I was going to say or do to this person. I was hurt, like anybody would be, when they lose somebody in such a tragic way, and especially at the hands of another human being. So you're thinking, like, I am angry. I am mad and I'm angry and when I see him, I'm going to say this, I'm going to do this. I had all these plans in my head. Well, fast forward, my grandmother was in a nursing home 
but she was in like a rehab. And I'm walking in with my daughter and I stop in my tracks. And my daughter kind of looked at me and this man walks past and she says to me, what's wrong? Who was that man? And I say, he's the person who killed your uncle. And my brother's name was Robert Jones and we called him RJ and I named my daughter after him. Is tell her all the stories of the great person who I loved. And kind of was caught me off guard. In that moment, I couldn't say all those things. I couldn't react the way I had planned to react. And he walked out. Fast forward a few months later, May 1st, taking my daughter and her friend out for her best friend's birthday. And I'm standing in front of Applebee's and we're laughing and we're joking. And he comes out and he looks and he kind of wasn't paying attention and I turn around and I said this is my time I'm going to say what I need to say all the things that I have been planning all the hurt that I have been built up inside of me for years I'm going to say what I need to say and I walked up to him and I asked him who I was if he knew who I was then I told him who I was and then I said to him I think we should work together and I kind of stopped in my tracks. And I remember thinking in my head, God, remember when I said I was going to say this and do this and we was going to do this? God, remember all the plans that I had been planning for all these years? What do you mean I want to work with him? And at that moment and that time, I didn't know what I meant by that. But just like a lot of the other loopholes, and I'll just share this before we even got to that point. My mother actually went and had a conversation with his mom. And I remember being so mad at my mom. Like, why did you do that? Like, why did you talk? And my mom just kept saying, I'm a mother who's hurting and she's a mother who's hurting. Maybe in different ways, but we're still hurting. And time kind of went by and I tried to reach out to his parole officer. And when somebody's released from prison and they're on parole, there's... I guess the state would say they're safeguards to make sure that person doesn't have contact with the families or the victims. I would say they're roadblocks, especially looking back at it now, that you can't talk to them, you can't associate with them, you can't be near them because we're trying to keep them safe, even if you don't want to be kept safe. So time kind of passed by and we saw each other again in the mall and I'm walking with my mom. I was like, mom, you know who that is? And I told her who it was. And she, she goes over to him. She has a conversation with him. She hugs him. And I was standing talking to somebody else and they were like, who's your mom hugging? And I told them who he was and they were like, are you serious? Like, that's what she's doing? And time came by and the beauty of social media, as much bad things it is, I get this inbox and say, hey, do you still want to work together? Let's meet up. And I say, sure. And we made plans at a neutral location. We actually met in Glassboro. And I remember sitting there with my mom and time kind of went. He wasn't there and he wasn't there. And I was like, you think he's going to actually show up? I don't know why I would show up. Like, I'm not sure I would walk into a situation with the mother and sister of the person I spent in prison for taking his life. And he came. And we sat and we talked. And I would say we've been friends ever since then. And that was a friendship that was built on something that was extremely not traditional. It was a friendship built on something that was built in a lot of pain for a lot of people. And it was a friendship that, to this day, family members 
don't agree with. And people don't understand. And to be very candid, I'm okay with that. I understand people's reluctance to understand how we got here today. But one thing I can say is that it's a friendship that I didn't know I needed. That really truly forgiving someone, being able to heal and sit down and have conversation with somebody who hurts you in a way that nobody else can understand is something that's very powerful. And it's something that we see that is so much need in this community because a lot of times we always hear hurt people hurt people and that's so very true. And also you don't understand the level of needing certain amount of healing that comes with being able to share something with somebody. And not to see somebody by, by just their actions and not to see somebody just from, well, this is who you are. We all get these titles, right? And some of the titles are good. Sometimes, sometimes we wear proudly, mother, daughter, sister, friend, and we own those titles. And there are some titles that are kind of iffy, like victim. I don't think anybody wants to be a victim forever. We like to hear survivor because survivor sounds, but that means I, I overcame something. But victim has not a connotation that whatever happened in my life has now defeated me, that has now weighed me down and taken me someplace. And a lot of times we don't realize where it's taken us. So I'm going to take some time and I'm sharing this today with my special guest, Ryan Young. <laughs> And I'll just say, Ryan, I'm used to speaking in front of people. I'm okay with speaking in front of people. Ryan is not as <laughs> comfortable at any given time speaking in front of people. And I would just say that um, although he has a story to tell, and his story is so important, a part of my story and how I'm here and how I'm able to advocate for my clients and also see the compassion for the other side of the fence. So, um, like I said, Ryan and I um, started hanging out now, how long ago? Three, four, right before the pandemic, 2019? Yeah. So, uh, before yeah, so 20, about 2018, 2019 is when we first um, started connecting. And we talk on a regular basis. We get on the phone, we have conversations, and we don't just talk about our story or our struggle, what's going on. We, I asked him about his family, he asked about my family, and we've kind of have bonded since then. Um, and bonded in a way that, like I said, most people don't understand. And one of the things that is important to, for me, or important about it for me, is that as a defense attorney, you see, as an attorney, period, you see people using when they're going through things. Most people don't go to lawyers because they have something happy to talk about, right? Most people are coming to lawyers because they have an issue, they have a problem. So sometimes you end up seeing people at the worst time in their lives, right? And the difficult thing is, is that they may be coming to you for issue one and you say, okay, this is just part of the issue. You have all these underlying things going on that you are a total person. And our system, the way it's designed now, is designed a lot on punishment. We want people, especially the criminal system, we want people to, we use nice terms like we want to be held accountable for their actions. But somehow our society has determined that accountability only comes with punishment. That we have to punish you in order for you to be held accountable. 
And um, for me, doing this work and doing it for a period of time makes me think about that that's what I wanted for Ryan. I wanted him to be punished. And that punishment really wasn't standing justice. That punishment was standing my hurt and my pain. That punishment was standing the fact that something was taken from me that never could be brought back to me. So I wanted somebody else to feel the same pain that I was feeling. How can anybody else be happy when I'm not? Right? When I'm missing certain things. And I will say this, that whether it was the time, from the time he was arrested and the time he was sentenced and the time he sat in jail, that pain didn't change. I didn't feel a sense of relief that he's now incarcerated or feel a sense of my life is now better. I still miss my brother every birthday he missed and every Christmas he wasn't there. It didn't change. That pain didn't, but it was a sense of confusion, not understanding what was going on. And truthfully, having a conversation with Ryan is the only way that I could understand a little bit better what had happened. And I, always said to somebody, people would say to me like, well, your story is powerful, you hear your story, but my story is not unique, but our story together, I believe, is slightly unique, right? Our story together is also more powerful because we're standing here with two sides of the same coin, two people who have, whose lives were forever changed and even lives are always connected on December 29th, people who didn't know each other before then. But we found that our parents, his father and my mom, went to grade school together, right? So to hear that and to understand his story a little bit more, that he's not just some villain in a movie, he's actually a human being who has his own family and his own people that he cares about. And he had a mother who loved him dearly and a brother and just a different story. So I want Ryan to just share a little bit about his experiences while he was incarcerated. I'm gonna probably try to ask him some questions because when I don't answer questions, he may not give me the answer. He may, I'm gonna kind of give him So Ryan, what was your experience like at 18? Now, having to go to prison. At 18, I was like kind of, you know, you put the blame on everybody else, you know, hold a little accountability. So it's like, um, uh, if this person didn't do this, if this person didn't do that, this situation would happen. I think that led up for me for like, I mean, years. Like you're, you're mad at everybody, thinking it's everybody else's fault but your own. But I think once you take accountability, then you start realizing, like, you know, it was me. It was my actions that caused this, but nobody else's action. And uh, I think that's when the growth happens. I think it happens then if you start learning yourself and, and uh, to start looking at how things, the person you should be versus what you thought you should be when you were 18 or you 16, when, you, when you're young, you're thinking you're like, uh, I don't think you're not thinking about life out there. I think you're just running around. I think the whole uh, uh, popularity thing goes on. I think the whole uh, wanting to hang out, run around and stuff like that. Like I said, I never knew her, uh, never knew her brother, never knew the person, the people that was there. I knew a couple, the group that was with me, whatever, but never had no issue with Never knew him like that. It was more of a, you know, situations occurred at night, people were with each other, and it's like, uh, you know, this group would stick with this group, this group would stick with this group, and, and the situation occurred when it was really, uh, I mean, it definitely shouldn't occur, but it, I mean, it happened off of just being young, and, and I'm with this group, and they're with this group, so they don't like him, so we don't like them. And, uh, but then you, when that happens all the time, you start seeing like, uh, like, and then you realize who's going to be there. 
Uh, you get there and you start realizing stuff like, man, what was this? Uh, it, it was no, uh, it was like no worth to the situation. It shouldn't happen. Like you're sitting there like, all right, well, I'm blaming this person. This person's blaming me. I'm blaming him. But in actuality, he was, you know, I was the one that did what I did, so it was my fault. I couldn't be mad at, uh, I couldn't be mad at this person or that person. And I think when I took that thing, things began to, begin to change for me. It was more or less, uh, it wasn't like I was, uh, I want to come home because I didn't do it no more. It was more like, uh, wanting to come home for other reasons. Not saying I didn't do it, but I'm accountable for it. But, uh, you know, I'm still looking for to come home. So, you talked about, like, who has your back. So, going through this process, who was actually, like, who was on your team? Who was visiting you? Who was putting uh, money on your books or coming to make sure you had phone calls? Who? It was uh, my mom. My mom, my uh, one best friend that I had from sixth grade, we still friends all the way till now. Uh, mom, my sister, this is me, if I had mom, my sister, my brother. Uh, that, was, that was basically it. Like all the people you ran with, friends, and uh, different girlfriends you was running around with, they, they all disappeared. I mean, you, you'll be mad at them beginning, but then you realize, like, uh, you know, life stops at no one. So it's like, you know I mean, I can't, I can't really be mad at them because their life wasn't supposed to stop because it's something out there. But when the end of the day, it's going to be a family. Your immediate family, it was my mom, my sister, my brother, and that's basically where it stopped right there. And your mom passed before you came home, right? Yeah, 17. Uh, I gave the time back in 09, and then I remember her telling me, she was saying that, uh, she said, well, now maybe I'll be alive when you get home. And then 17, 17 months after that, she passed away. So when you came home, so now you're home. And you're trying to figure things out. Did you have any roadblocks that hit you when you came home? But uh, for being a convicted felon or having a record? Uh, I think in the beginning, they, I think paroles. Uh, I'm not. Gonna, I mean, I guess they're, they're doing a job. But I think they're they're trying to figure out what type of individual won't be. So they're they're kind of like it's a lot more pressure on you from them until you like get a job and stuff like that. But then I remember I got a job with the. Uh, like in, when you're locked up, they don't tell you that. Uh, at that time, parole paid for whatever you want to go to school for. Parole doesn't tell you this. And I brought it to parole, and that's how I had to get my CDLs. They had to pay for my CDLs. And I got my CDL job, and I was uh, I was driving uh, tankers, and I was in Virginia, and they had like these overweight scales. And I got an overweight ticket, but the overweight ticket is like a it's scale master. It's not an actual cop, but it's a state trooper in it. So uh, you have to give your license up. But whenever your license gets pulled up, it runs through your system. So uh, I'm not paying it online. You're supposed to let your parole officer know like you had police contact. So um, probably like 10 o'clock that night. This happened around like probably 4 o'clock in the morning. But it's like 10 o'clock later on that night, parole officer called me. And uh, he was talking about violence. So he sent me back because I called the, I had police contact with the telephone. In my head, I'm thinking like, I am probably police contact. What are you talking about? But then I, so I realized I gave the cop my, uh, my ID to scale out. So I, it, was, it was a whole big thing. It was another, uh, the guy I worked for at the time, he was a, uh, he used to be assemblyman Matt Miller, and he uh, he he had Prosser come down there. He told him the same thing I told Prosser, but Prosser took his word because of basically who he was versus who I was. And it was the same same situation, same same story. It was no different. All right, so let's talk about us, mm -hmm. right? When I came to you and started talking to you, what was going through your head? Uh, you know, it was, it was skeptical. It was like a it was kind of like unbelievable. It was like, how can somebody forgive you for, you know, I took your brother's life. And it's like, 
to think that you will forgive me for that or even wonder if it's an ulterior motive. Is is uh, am I trying to be set up here? Am I trying to get me uh, be put back in prison? It was, you know, all these type of things ran through my head. Where I had certain uh, certain people in my family it was like, you know, you might want to be careful. You don't know what this is about and everything. And, so it was being nervous and not realizing how, you know, how true it could be because it was like I said, it's a hard thing. Like I still don't believe, I don't believe it now. So it's still, it's still hard to believe where you like, you're kind of skeptical of it. So um, I want to take you back to being incarcerated for a second. Okay. So what, when you were incarcerated and you said at this point, you just get in contact from immediate family members, mm -hmm. right? You knew your time was a set amount of time, even before you, um, before you got your time taken back. Like, like you, your max out was twenty years. You had twenty years, right, mm -hmm. originally. Okay. And you said, at what point during that time do you think that that shift changed for you? That that time from this eighteen, almost nineteen year old to the time you realized, okay. I need to do something different, right? I need to make, like, how long do you think you were in before that happened? Excuse me, Go ahead. could you speak up just a little yes. bit? Yes, so what I'm asking him was, he, talk, he talked about earlier how at some point in the beginning he blamed others, and then he kind of made a shift. So I'm just trying to ask him, like, what point did he kind of make that shift? At what point in his, in his incarceration did he think that things kind of clicked for him that, hey, I need to do something different? or I need to take accountability for my actions? I would say probably about, probably like at least six years in, at least six years in before I started looking at things differently and looking at the output and also seeing different people in there that were, like I was in there with guys that was, did 20 years go home and then I'll mess around, see him again in two years and back in there, I'm like, wow. And I'm like, I don't wanna be that guy. And I think that you, you know, the things I see, kind of like shifted me and looking at stuff in ways. Do you think that when people are released, they need better support systems? Or have, do you think that made a difference for you? Yeah, it yeah. yeah, it makes a big difference. Because if, if you don't have nobody, it's like, a, you're gonna go back to what you know to survive. That's gonna be the thing, you go back to what you know to survive. You don't have anybody that's uh, in your corner, but it doesn't have to be found. If somebody that's in your corner that's really supporting you, then I think you'll, you'll go back to did the same. Like I had officers in there. There was a couple officers that was like they knew, like they saw me growing. So it was like a couple of them. They saw when I was getting short. And I remember one told me it was like, uh, "If you need any help, you get out. If you uh, need help get a job, you can contact me." So and little things like that. I think that that helps you where you're not looking at somebody as uh, you know just a, a criminal or addict. It's not like oh, well, this person's a, he's been in prison for this or he's, he's in prison for that. And um, I don't know. I think I think that plays a big part. That uncle. My uncle, uh, he was, uh, he was, we used to be talking to him. He's like, all right, well, what kind of, uh, what kind of career can you get to support yourself with your record? You know? And I used to think about that. All right, what can I do? To, what can I do? And I started thinking about getting my CDLs. I had another uncle that drove trucks. I said, he supported the family, so you, you could make a living off of it. And uh, my last two years, last two years before I came home, I had rode a motor vehicle, got the CDL book in. My uncle and my brother had picked up ones from the bookstores that didn't build in. And I was just studying that the whole time. I mean, started focusing on that. Like, all right, well, this is a job that I can get with. You know, with my record, it's going to be hard getting a job that you can really uh, 
you know, make some, uh, make a nice increment to take care of plants. Okay. And what advice would you give to December 28th, 1988, Ryan, to that 18-year-old kid the day before? What advice do you think that, that you think that could have helped you or that you think could help another young person who may be where you were back then? Take the time to sit down. Take the time to, to, to listen to your mother or listen to older people. Like at that age, you don't want to listen to nobody older. You feel you're a kid, you know it all. But I think uh, you have to listen. I think a lot of times, there's a lot of things I look at now where my mom says certain things, and then what you talk about now is like, I think she passed away in uh, 2020, almost, almost 10 years now. So now, and I, I still see stuff the day that she said came true, where it's like, man, she told me about it. Or she told me about this certain individual where uh, that night, that night that happened, that night I was running around. And I think I came, I was in school, I was actually in college. Came home, spring break, never even unpacked my bags. And I was in Christmas break. Came home, was he? <laughs> never even, never even unpacked my bag. I was just speeding around nonstop. And uh, me and my mom passed each other in the car. She's waving me down, I stopped. And she was like, uh, slow down, slow down. I said, I'll be back, I'll be back. That was the last time I saw her for you. But if I had listened to her and just, you know, went home or sat down somewhere, you know, I mean, the situation wasn't like her. All right. One last question, and I'm going to say something, and we open up for other people who have questions. What do you think we all can do as a community, right? So we know the advice that Ryan can give to a young person. But for all of us who are out here and the people who are on the what can we do as a community? Because I think that every time we turn on the news and we see another young person has lost their right to gun violence, Right. And, and a lot of times as the hand of another young person, what can we do as a community, do you think, to be proactive? A lot of times we're reactionary, right? We do things after the fact. But what can we do as a community to be proactive? Like, what could we have done for the 18-year-old Ryan, who, or even the Ryan, or even the young man who doesn't have a mom who's going to tell him to slow down? Um, well, I think sometimes it's... Uh... It's still a situation that occurred in that person's life somewhere that they might not even be aware of, or you know, I mean, themselves is going to cause by. Like I bring back my uncle, and my uncle, uh, like my, I lost my dad when I was uh, I was 14 years old. My dad died my uncle, and it was like after that I ran out there was in the streets running around, and my uncle would say to that. My uncle said later on when I was locked up and stuff, he's like, had I known that I just took you out to go fishing or do this and do that, and I think. Uh, just that time with somebody, I think that, that time you pull away from that kid where it's like you, you bring you get him away from that element a little bit. You take him, you do somewhere with him or something like that. I mean, the kid might not even know he got a problem. He might not even know what, what's going on, what happened to him is going to affect him in the long run. But I think as a, I think as an adult, sometimes you can see it. And I think uh, I think you have to step in. I think you need to step in. I think you can, you can do different things. You can, like I said, you can go fishing or basketball or Anyway, take them somewhere or do something with them. I think all that plays a difference and keep them from, try to keep them from pushing to that, uh, you know, to that outside world. So, Melissa started, she said, I was going to ask you or talk to you kind of about justice, right? What is it? And it's a question that I ask myself every day. And it seems the deeper and deeper I get into the legal system, the answer becomes very blurry for me. So, the 18 year old Joellen, thought justice was Ryan staying in prison forever. That, 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 in my sense, like, something was taken from me, and to be very candid, it wasn't just I wanted to 
Ryan to her. I wanted everybody in Ryan's family to her, right? I wanted his mom to feel the pain. I wanted his sister to feel the pain. And sometimes when Ryan and I are speaking and we talk about it, I sometimes have to say, thank you for forgiving me because I thought some very nice, not nice things about you over the years, right? So thank you for even coming and talking to me because I probably would have been like him. I would have been like, I'm not going to talk to that family. Like, I have no idea what they're going to do. He's been in my house multiple times and you see he's still here healthy and safe. We have harmed him in any way, shape, or form. Um, but for years, that's what I want. So the 18-year-old Joellen, with those experiences, thought justice was inflicting pain on somebody else. Right. And as I've grown and I've practiced law now for almost 12 years, justice looks very different for me. And justice to me that just focuses on punishment is really not justice. There has to be allowed for some healing if need be or wanted by individuals. Because that's to me how our communities move forward. So many times you hear this happened and this person's name is involved here and maybe in this situation, this family is a victim and the next turn around, this family is now the family that is crying out like Ryan's mom was because their child is about to be incarcerated. I wish I had some wise words to tell you all, this is what justice looks like and this is what it is. But depending on our circumstances and who we are, you're going to get different answers. If I ask a number of people in different areas of the field, even the other attorneys in my office, or I ask the attorneys in the prosecutor's office, or I ask law enforcement, or I ask some of the people who are rallying for that of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, what justice looks like, you're going to get different answers. But I think that if we all sit back and we get back to the very basic human nature of compassion, of knowing that everybody who comes through, we come in contact with, has a story to tell, that we are not the worst thing we've ever done in our lives. And that may be different for everybody else, whether it's not telling the truth, maybe it's still in a candy bar, maybe the worst thing you do in life. But when we think about, about it, we don't want to be judged by that moment. And to be honest, I'll be candid. I don't want to be judged by the best moment of my life because that may not be true to who I am as a whole either. You may have just caught me on a good day, right? You may just say, well, Lisa says I have a big heart and compassionate. That's even a heavy load to carry, thinking that everything I have to do has to be done with love and compassion. Not that I don't try to do that because guess what? You may just catch me on the day that I'm not feeling very loving or very compassionate. One of my dear friends is here. I'm not going to call her out, but she's usually on the opposite side of the courtroom than I am. And there's probably people in her office who think that she is not, you're friends with Joellen, she is not a nice person. So depending on who you at, she may get a, a completely different response. And they probably question her friendship. And I have another other dear friends who are here who may see me in a different light or see me as a justice warrior, there's times I say things that I think are aligned with my truth that may not be okay with everybody else. Even standing here next to Ryan, there are people who have said to me, people from family members, church organizations, how dare you do that? How dare you do that? And I remember saying to somebody that if my mother, the woman who birthed my brother, is okay with me standing next to Ryan, nobody else on this planet can tell me anything differently. 
Because although fathers are great, there's nothing like a bond between a mother and her child from the moment that child's conceived. So if my mother's okay with it, nobody else can say anything else. And she's actually even made a wreath for him for Christmas for his door and the pan cookies and masks when the pandemic first happened. So what I kind of challenge everybody to do is kind of think about when you hear these cries for justice, what do you want to see? There are so many different systems that are out there. So in Norway, which I am someday going to go through Norway's prison system if I ever get a chance. I'm trying to get some of my organizations to say, hey, we're going to send you to Norway. Um, Norway's system is based all solely on compassion and restorative justice and transformative justice. When you go into the prisons, the people are not being locked down like their animals are treated as such. They're treated with some type of humanity because they know, just like in our system, that the majority of people who go through those doors are somehow going to be come back out. They're going to come back out and be part of our society. So we have to now, we want them to be accountable for their actions, but we have to be accountable for how we treat them through that process. Ryan was blessed to have people to treat him with compassion. Ryan was blessed to be able to have a mother who supported him. But if we treat people like animals, if we disrespect them, if we say that they're only as good as that moment in their life where they made maybe a horrible decision or maybe a series of horrible decisions, that that kind of justifies us in treating them poorly, that says more about who we are as a society than what it says about them. And I always tell people this, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I did go to Sunday school and I learned a lot of lessons in Sunday school. I maybe can't tell you where it is in the Bible, but I'm sure it's there when I hear a story, right? And they talk about in the Bible how at times, like even a, even a bad person or a mean person can be nice to people who are nice to them. That's easy to do. It's easy to show compassion to people who are nice to us. It's easy to come into a room and give somebody a hug when we feel good about it, when somebody be like, but it's harder to show compassion to somebody who has wronged us. And I look at it this way. I'm a Christian. I've been going to church my whole entire life. And I think about all the times God has forgiven me, right? Some things I have done out in the open. Some things I have done secretly. Some things that I pray that only person knows about is me and God. And when I get before him, I want to have a conversation with him. But nobody else hopefully will know about it, right? And... I think that we all deserve some type of compassion because we've all fallen short. And we have, a, we have a, a way of saying, well, I did this, but it wasn't that bad. I didn't do something as bad as he did. But the point is, we're all connected. And we're all better when one or two or three or most of us are better. We're all better when we show each other compassion and we give somebody opportunity to be able to come out and say, hey, I made a mistake. New Jersey, like a lot of other states, has what they call collateral consequences. So we see the physical consequence of committing a crime. You commit a certain degree of offense, you can get this amount of punishment. But we don't see all the things that go after that, right? We don't see the Ryan to get a mere traffic stop that may send him back to prison for the remainder of his time. We don't see the jobs that are shut off from, the licenses that you never can hold. We don't see all these things, the housing that you no longer can get, the financial aid that's taken from you if you have certain drug offenses. We don't see that. And because our system is designed to get things done in a certain time frame, we're now asking people sometimes to make decisions that they don't know how to make because they haven't had those support systems. 
And I think that my challenge to most people is think about what can I do? I believe justice is a job for all of us. I don't think it just leads from the judge or the prosecutor or the defense attorney or the law enforcement. It's a judge, a job for all of us. We all have a duty to get out there and see what I can do. It's funny because I have these conversations and people say, but it's such a big problem. You see all these issues going. And I said, yes, it's a big problem if you're trying to tackle it by yourself. It's no different than when we got, I got involved in M25, and one of the first problems M25 tried to tackle was homelessness. And it came very simple. Someone lost their life trying to get into a bin to stay warm. So my dear friend, who I love dearly, he may be on, he may not be on, Pastor Rob said, we need to have warming centers so people have a place to go when it's warm. And it's fine. And it just started out with just churches. The community organizations opened up their doors saying, hey, I'm going to volunteer to come in. I'm going to volunteer for my church. And then it went even further. People said, all right, we're going to bring food on those days. It wasn't a lot of whatever. It was like different restaurants were donating. People in their church were cooking. People in their house were cooking. But it's like we saw the problem. We tried to tackle it. And then Pastor Rob said, now I'm going to do that. I'm going to create M25. And not only do I want to offer warmness, I want to alleviate homelessness in Cumberland County. And people looked at him like he was crazy. Like, what do you mean you want to do that? So he started finding funding and getting partners in the community and starting an event. And now I believe we're at 100, maybe right under 100 of formerly homeless people in Cumberland County who have been put into permanent housing. It was just taking on the problem one step at a time. Ryan said, maybe I can't mentor a million kids, but maybe I see a kid in my community who you know may need a little bit of help, who I can invite to. Because if I help this one kid and you help this one kid and somebody else helps this one kid, we've now made a difference. No, I can't take on every child in Cumberland County. Nobody's asking anybody to do that. That's, that would be draining, right? And you get come, come defeated if you try to take on that way. But if you get the right teams and we all do a little bit better, we can see that, and we've seen it in our society. We've seen times, whether I was having a conversation with somebody about 9-11, you saw the work that people put in. We see that when you see a hurricane, and you see people coming together and donating water. Take that mindset in everything that we do. Take that mindset and move it forward. And I think that we'll look at justice and have conversations with people, whether it's talking to Ryan or talking to some of our guests with Code Blue, you realize everybody has a story. And I'm gonna end with one last story. And that just, just shows that you never know what somebody's going through. So when I finished law school, law school is a unique thing because you don't just graduate and you become a lawyer, right? So before I went to law school, um, my story to going to law school, I've always like I always said I knew what to be a lawyer. So when I graduated from um, high school, my brother had just passed. So I ended up going to Rowan. And I literally took my application to Rowan University the day it was due, stopped on my mom's job, got a check, and was like, here, here's my application. So I had blew all my deadlines. I had lost my brother. It wasn't a priority for me. So I go into Rowan and I finished Rowan. I actually went for a year, went out for a year, and went back and finished. And graduating in May, found out I was pregnant with my daughter in June. And I thought I was going to go to law school. Like, I can't go to law school now. I have this daughter. And I end up going and working as a probation officer. So I'm working as a probation officer, and I walk through the courthouse, and I'm like, there's nothing I want to do here except for being a lawyer. So I randomly, one night, decided to apply to law school. And Widener University was free to apply. So it wasn't like I wanted to go to Widener, but it was a law school. I was a single mom, and I didn't have to pay anything to apply. So I went online, applied to go to law school. 
And then I get this letter. You've been accepted, but you've been waitlisted. I was like, oh, that's nice. And then I get this letter that says, well, you can start in like two weeks. And I literally called my mom and was like, yeah, I need a couple thousand dollars. And she's like, what's going on? I'm going to go to law school in two weeks. So I'm going to need somebody to help me fund this endeavor, right? Because once again, I'm a single mom. I don't have extra money. And it wasn't that I planned on doing, right? I knew I wanted to do it. So I get to law school and my first two years, um, I get grades, I got B's, I got some C's, and for me, that was a big deal. School was always easy for me, and I was like, I can't do this anymore. So my next call from my mom was two, two years later, and now I have this three-year-old daughter, and I called her and was like, guess what? And she's like talking to me like she normally does, like, I'm quitting my job. Like, I'm going to quit my job. <laughs> so I'm going to now grocery shop at your house, and I'm going to extend my student loans, and yeah, this is what I'm doing. And she's probably thinking like, what? And I was like, oh, by the way, I also need you to take custody of my daughter because she, need, she needs health insurance while I'm finishing it up. But I can't do this anymore. I can't go to school all day and work all night. I mean, work all day, go to school all night. It's becoming too much. So now two years later passes and I'm graduating from law school. And what's neat, unique, I don't know about other law schools, but what Rowan does, I mean, what Weiner does is that if you've passed your finals, your, de your degree is in the two when you get it, walk across the stage. But if you haven't passed your finals, you don't. You can still walk, but there's no degree. So I, at the time, a tradition in law, law school sometimes is for your kid to graduate with you, to walk with you. So RJ's walking across the stage with me, and I'm graduating, and I'm excited. And I, first thing I do when I duck the stage is open the tube, and I see my degree, and I'm like, yes, okay, I passed these classes. And I gave the degree to my grandma, and I had, didn't see it again until she passed away. She kept it ever since then. I found it when I was cleaning through her stuff. So now I'm unemployed, I had this law degree, and now I have to take a test that determines whether I can practice law. And I'm nervous because I hate taking tests and I hated property law. If anybody ever saw the Charlie Brown cartoons and you would hear the teacher like wah, 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 that's exactly how all my property classes sounded to me. I heard wah, 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 wah. I was like, I'm never passing this test. So I had this program and I was studying. Now I'm unemployed, working in the summertime. I mean, working, working on this, studying, going to these classes. My grandma paid for my, my prep class for me and I'm just trying to maintain it. Because mind you now also, the student loan money has ran out. So I'm out of student loan money. I'm sitting here thinking like, my mom has no idea, but she about to have two more people come live with her. But whatever, <laughs> she'll be surprised when we get there. That's my thought. My grandma's somebody, I'm gonna live with somebody. And I go to take the test, and I get to Atlantic City a couple of days early, and I'm, I'm practicing. And I go down to the beach, and I'm studying. And I'm sitting there, and I would go on the beach early in the morning and study before anybody gets out there. So this man who was homeless was out there. And he looked at me, and he was like, what are you doing? I said, I'm studying. I said, what are you studying for? I'm studying for the bar. And he starts telling me his story, how he was an accountant, and how he lost his job in more recent years and just tell me about his struggles. And then at the end of our conversation, he said to me, I'm gonna pray for you. And my thought was this man who's living under the bulwark in Atlantic City is gonna take one of his prayers to show me some compassion, right? And I'm thinking like, there's probably a lot of better other things that you'd be praying for rather than me taking this test. And in that moment, I realized that whether I pass or fail, I have a support system. And even a support system from a stranger who didn't know me and had a lot more problems in my mind than I, had, I was going through that day. So I went and I took the test and 
Another thing about the bar is that they don't give you your test results right away. So I take the test in July. I didn't get this results until November. So for months, I'm sitting there waiting, not knowing what my future holds. Something that I put every, I put all my eggs in one basket, which I used to tell people don't ever do that. Try to figure out what I'm going to do. And I remember why the results came out. They give it to you by number, and I look at my number, and I saw a pass, and I was like, this can't be right. Then I look at it again, and saw a pass. I thought, well, let me read all the numbers before me and after me, because maybe I'm reading somebody else's pass, right? And it said pass. And um, I remember being so excited. I had two phones, my cell phone and my regular phone. So I decided to call my, my mom and my grandma simultaneously. Like, I need to call them both at the same time. I don't know who to call first. Like, if I call my grandma first, then my mom may feel slighted. If I call my mom first, my grandma definitely would not have been okay with that. So <laughs> I call them both at the same time to tell my dad. And my mom actually spray painted her yard. The other thing about that is that New Jersey is one of those states that you have to pass the test, but you have to pass a character and fitness part to be a part of the bar. And they don't run their character and fitness part until after you pass the test. So you have now paid for the test, you have character and fitness, and they may tell you that you maybe you pass, but you do not have the character to become an attorney. And to be very candid, I told them everything when I was applying. My application probably was about this thick. I told them about every fight I was in, every time I had been suspended from school, every ticket I, I mean, I gave them more information than they probably needed. So I found out I passed and I didn't hear anything, and then I get a call from an attorney who was doing my character fitness. He was like, I have never seen an application this thick. So we got to go over a few things. And I sat and I told him that, and my thought would be another moment for me that when I was being judged, that somebody was making a determination. And I hear it a lot of times in the courthouse when people say, well, your past behaviors demonstrate to us or reflective of what we think you're going to do in the future. And I thought to myself, every time I hear a judge say that, is that thank the Lord that nobody at that moment, that attorney didn't say, because your past behaviors, we won't allow you to go on. So I challenge you all to find somebody that you can help. Find an organization that you can volunteer with. When you see somebody in the street or you see somebody doing something, just don't automatically see that this is a bad person, but a person who's going through something at this moment. I always say that we're always, we're on this like, this scale of good and bad. And we want to say that there's good people and bad people, but the truth of the matter is that's not really true, right? They, I mean, I think there may be some agreement that there are some people who we don't necessarily want to live up to, like the Hitlers of the world, and they're all the way on the extreme end. And there are some people like Mother Teresa that were like, yeah, you know, well, I'm not going to even try to get to her level. I'm, like, I'm out there. Most of us kind of fit in that middle, where any given day, any given moment, any given circumstance, we can find ourselves one way or the other. So I challenge you all to be compassionate, be loving. Challenge your views on what you think justice is and what it looks like. And do you think that it should be just based solely on punishment, but to have some level of compassion in it? So we're going to open it up for any questions, whether online or otherwise. Okay. And, yeah, and if people, when you ask your question, Joella, maybe you could repeat the question. So I will. Okay, great. Any questions? I, I got a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, not for me. These are for yeah, me. I know. I think you're
remember those three. So the first one is do you plan your plans? What are your plans? He's getting married. Oh. That's the plan. <laughs> I mean, I might have one on me, I might not have one. 
I think it was like the age bracket of me being in the street. Okay. Any other questions? I really curious about the Ryan um, I was, I was actually like I was stuck. I didn't know. I really didn't know who she, uh, who she was. Cause even during the court proceedings, it was always, I never, I never seen any of them. I was always looking straight forward. I never, I heard, I heard their voices and everything like that. But when she came up to me, I never. She told me who she was. Kind of like, you know, threw me for a loop. I think I was stuck, man. I really, I think. I don't, I don't remember if you was. You called me after that, I think. Because I was scared I was on parole too. Because yeah. I had to call my parole officer yeah. and tell him that I had contact. Yeah, with so it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. I was. Uh, you know, it was like it was unreal. The same thing with her mom. Her mom hugged me in the mall. It was like, you know, it's like, what do you do? Because it's like you can say, as much as as much as I could be remorseful, sorry for what I've done. Me actually telling her that I'm sorry or or I apologize for what I've done is is kind of like it's almost like you sound like a generic. I took her son's life. So it was like, how can you actually, how can I ever apologize to you? Know I mean, it's like, kind of like. He thought I was mean, too. Huh? He thought I was mean. Said, yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure how. I used to hear you. I used to hear you. <laughs> I mean, but I understood it. I understood the situation because of, you know, I, I've done what I've done. So I can understand why, why you're that way. But that was all I ever heard. So I never heard, you know, I never seen you guys. It was like. <laughs> what would you think we could, anybody could do to tell a kid like you that that's foolishness. And they, when you're 18, you know it all. Yeah. And how can we reach all these kids on the street who are, Philadelphia's ever run with violence? Well, I, think, I mean, I think you can't, I think you can't reach everybody at once. Well, I think when you start reaching a, uh, one person and then like I said, like a, like he, he might see you reach somebody, so now it kinda of motivates him to want to do something and I mean and then it's like uh it, I mean we we'll be foolish to think if you can save everyone. You can't I mean everyone it's, it's hard to save everyone. But I mean I think there's are people that you can save. I think it can be done. It is the it becomes hard when you put that weight thinking you're gonna save everyone. You just have to start with that one person I I would also say that I don't think you have to go with it with the initiative that I want to stop this kid from committing a life of crime. So that I want to get my opportunities, right? So I want to open up our meetings or our our place to worship our I don't want to say homes, but our area, safe space that allow for kids to come in and play board games, to have conversations and to kind of find out to make sure they have a place to eat. I had a youth group when I was pregnant with my daughter and we would feed our girls meals every Thursday, right? Full-fledged meals. And I think that we don't realize how far a little meal can actually go. My daughter was, she didn't play basketball, she was a basketball manager. Um, and I would sometimes just take pizza to the kids. A lot, they were having where a lot of the kids, they got done school half a day because of COVID and they still had to be there until later for basketball. So one day I just had pizza brought to the school for the kids to eat. Just to say that, you know what, they're here for a long day, right? I didn't know whether they wanted to eat or not, but probably in this, this typical way of teenage boys they ate. I went to every basketball game. Even though my daughter was not playing, my mother a lot of times drug, and even away games we went to. So I think it's just seeing the community show up for you makes a big difference. 
When I used to go and speak to young people before a riot, I went to sometimes juvenile facilities, and a lot of the kids don't see any hope. They don't think that people care about them. They don't think they don't see things pass. If you're if you know somebody who's good with math or language, or a lot of people retire, especially retired educators, maybe you offer some tutoring for families. You know, um, I think it's just. Although I think that the direct, ref, the direct, ref, the direct, I guess, consequence, consequence, but the direct reaction of it will be that the more kids we help, the less likely they know that they're that they're going to be inclined to do something else. Like I said, somebody taking them fishing, somebody taking them, teaching them how to tie a tie, somebody teaching them how to write a resume, somebody telling them that you know what you did good, right? I see you. I saw you progress. I watched you when you first started playing basketball. Now I'm watching you now a couple of years later, and you're doing well. When I go to some of the basketball games or even football games, and there's nobody in the stands, I'm thinking, like, these kids don't really have cheerleaders in the community. I think that makes a big difference, just knowing. Like, we don't have to go and say to you, don't do this. But if they know somebody's cheering them on, you know, I always said that my grandmother was somebody, and more so than my mom. And I love my mom to death. My grandmother was somebody that people knew things. And if I went somewhere and did something, I was so afraid sometimes that my grandma would hear about it, right? And just because I felt like I knew what she put into me and how, like, so because I knew somebody cared, right? So when you kind of know there's somebody else who's going to look at you like, you know, I was kind of disappointed. And I'll be very candid. When I was pregnant, my grandma didn't speak to me. If you say remote silence, she, she would walk into a room and act like I wasn't there because she was disappointed that I was a, I was, uh, unwed, I was, and she didn't speak to me. But this one moment, I said something about being pregnant, and she looked at me. She was like, "They better not say nothing about you." When I know their history, like she was like, she could be mad at me, but she was gonna bite us. But I always knew she still had my back, and I always still wanted to be. At the same time, while I was in law school, I would call her 12:30, 1 o'clock in the morning, leaving well, Wilmington, Delaware, and she would talk to me. And she had a rotary phone. She would stand at her phone and talk to me all the way home. So I think it's just knowing that somebody is willing to stand up for you. Somebody's willing that somebody's rooting you. So I think it doesn't have to be like a formal program. It just could be something like we're going to open our, we're going to have game nights. And we're going to give the kids a safe place to come and interact. And if we see that something's going on, we're going to be able to hopefully get them to resources that, that could probably help them in the long run. until I forgave Brian, right? So 
I didn't know that a lot of my decisions or being angry or mad about things was directly reflected based on the fact that I had not forgave him. And I do feel so much better. Like, first of all, being mad and angry is a definitely a burden that weighs you down. And then you gotta remember that you're mad and angry, right? So it's like, well, hold up, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be mad right now. I'm not supposed to be happy. So I do feel so much relief. Like, I talk to him about different things and I may ask him advice and we talk to this. And it's also one of those things that I always tell people, like, that doesn't mean I don't miss my brother, right? I think about him often. I miss him. I named my daughter after him. I miss him. I think about him so very much. And even when things are happening in my life, I'm like, oh, I wish I could share this with him, or I wish I could talk to him about it. But Brian, what happened wasn't meant to hurt me. It wasn't even meant to necessarily hurt RJ, even though that's what happened. I had to do a lot of things that were going on in his life. And when I was able to kind of separate the two, and I realized that his pain is which caused me pain long-term in my life, that it wasn't directly related, and that it's okay to forgive him. It's okay not to hold that burden for so long. And doing what I do for a living, how can I, and I had to question myself, how can I ask people to show my clients compassion? when I'm not willing to show him compassion. I want to be somebody who can walk in their truth and who can walk in the word, words they're doing. So who am I to tell the rest of the world that my client is a human being that needs to be showed compassion and needs to be showed understanding when I'm not willing to show him that same love and that understanding and compassion. So I am relieved by it. And don't get me wrong, I'm not perfect with it, right? Because I hear stories and hear things and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that somebody would do that. But then I had to step away from that, that moment and be like, okay, everybody came to this with a story. I had an attorney who mentored me tell me that the state sometimes wants to focus on this moment in time, this my new moment in time. But they don't want to focus on what happened before that or what happened after that because being able to villainize somebody, it's easy to do it. Like this is what this person did in this, this, in this moment. But when you're able to widen that story and you're able to say what happened leading up to that, maybe, and not just the moments leading up to that, or maybe not even the days, but the weeks, the years, the time period leading up to that. And I think also one of the reasons why we don't like doing that is because that now requires us as a community to be held accountable for the actions that we have done, right? So when we, are as a community have to sit back and say, oh, I can't believe these people are out here begging for money. But when we think about the system that we created that leads to homelessness, we can we now have to be responsible for that person out there begging money. And I think that's the difference. So I feel better. I feel like I can walk into my truth. I think that when I talk to young people, I can talk to them from a better understanding. I always say when I walk into the courtroom, I am a person who has seen this system from every side, which makes my perspective different than a lot of the other people who are coming into it. And it makes me, has made me a better lawyer. It has made me, I think, a better friend. It has allowed me to break down a part of my soul that I didn't realize that needed to be kind of rebuilt and brought in. So yes, I'm definitely a better person standing here. And I don't know who I would have been if I had not started, the, we haven't went through this journey together. Okay. I just want to say that the, the capacity for you to show the love of 
I also want to applaud both of you because while you mentioned the truth that hurting people hurt people, you are living out the premise that healing people help heal people. Mm -hmm. So I just want to congratulate you and, and, and say God bless you both. Oh, thank you. Um, so w when you're going to defend someone who is, I guess it would be fresh off of uh, doing something, whatever, or allegedly doing something, how do you try to um, give them compassion or uh, kind of get them out of that immediate situation and try and move it towards someone like him um, who has kind of moved on and tried to hit you again? That's what I'm saying. So what I try to do the first time I meet a client is let them talk, right? So although in my mind, I have now, if I've got discovery or reports and analyzing it from a legal standpoint, my client is not looking at it from a legal standpoint. They're looking at it from whatever has happened or whatever is going on in their lives at that moment, right? So I went into ShopRite, yes, I went and tried to steal something, or maybe I'm in the middle of addiction and I'm trying to steal something to sell or whatever else. So for me to go in there sometimes and say, well, look, this is what your case is about, they're not hearing that. Right, so tell me about what's going on with you. And in ideal world, I can do that for hours and hours on time, but sometimes it's not always viable to do that. But I try to figure out, okay, what's going on? Because if somebody talks to you long enough, you'll kind of know what's important. You've heard me mention my daughter, my mom, and certain people. If anybody doesn't know me, that they do, my daughter is like, is so important to me. And just by listening to me talk, there's probably not a time I had ever talked or gave a conversation that I don't mention her. So my clients are the same way. So when they start talking to me about what's going on in their life, they start mentioning things, I kind of know where they're coming from and what's important to them. So I kind of listen to that, right? And then it's a, so as a defense attorney, it's a battle, right? It's in a battle because I have an individual client who's right here who needs help with this specific issue or maybe multiple issues. It's also, as what I consider myself a social justice advocate, thinking like, this should never happen in the first place. He's here because we don't have this mental health program, we don't have this, blah, 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 and everybody needs to be held responsible for my client's pain. And I gotta kind of check myself to say, another friend, another mentor, actually, same mentor reminded me that, so when Rose, uh, during the civil rights movement, a lot of people were incarcerated. But they chose to be incarcerated. They chose to be a martyr for that cause. My client usually is not choosing to be a martyr for the cause. They're not trying to be a poster child for mental health or a poster child for addiction or a poster child for police brutality. They just know they're in a situation right here, right now, they need to get out of it. And my mind is thinking like, this cop shouldn't have said this, this person shouldn't have said this, we're going to do this and we got to do that. And I got to kind of step away from that, which is very hard to do because I'm thinking like, I see the bigger picture, but this person who's in that moment is not here to see that bigger picture. And it's my job to help them in that moment. Sometimes that moment, that, that resolution isn't taking a plea offer. That, that is the best offer they can get. Sometimes that resolution is going to try. And as a defense attorney, either one of them is a hard pill to swallow. Right? Knowing that we have a system that is filled with all the isms that there is. Racism, sexism, cap you have capitalist stuff going on. There's all this stuff going on, right? A system that's built in inequity, right? A lot of times. And I'm now signing somebody up to have a criminal conviction. And that criminal conviction may lead to them having all these other collateral consequences. And these 
I'll tell you if I don't sleep one night. These are thoughts that are constantly going through my head, right? And like, okay, yes, maybe they're getting probation, but I'm looking at you like, okay, this person's battling addiction. Can this person who's battling addiction, are they in a space to really get through probation? If they get violated, then this is going to happen, then they're going to go to state prison. Maybe I'm not the attorney that's going to be around when they get violated, be able to advocate for them to know. So all these all these thoughts are constantly going on. So not only do I have to help my client focus, sometimes I have to focus, and I have to hear them. And I, think I, and I have to accept the space that they're in. I think that's one thing that we don't want to do. Somebody has said to me before, they talk about Jesus and when Jesus washed the feet of others. And they said, at that moment, it wasn't about the others, it was about Jesus. It was actually about him, about him humbling himself to do something, right? And the problem is, and those people got up, and guess what? They walked on the floor again and they got their feet dirty. And that's the one thing that we don't like to do, right? We as a society believe that if I help somebody or I do what I think is right or I'm, I'm out there doing it, that somehow if they don't, bounce back after that initial help that we get mad. We take it personal. But it's not us helping people is not really about them. It's about us learning about who we are. So for me with clients, I listen to them. I try to make the best decision. Even if I may not agree, maybe if I think they should go to trial, they choose not to, or if they want to take a plea, offer and not talk to. And I try to take in consideration where they are in their life, right? A lot of times clients who are incarcerated, they're first thought is, I just want to be out of jail, right? So they're willing to take certain risks because they want to go out of jail. I have other clients who are like, no, I want to take a trial. And you're thinking like, oh, I don't know if this is the best idea. I don't know if I can get 14 people to agree with us. But we're, we're going to do that. We're going to, this is what you want to do. So I think it's realizing that it's not about me. And although I have this ideal of justice or this desire to work forward, I have to kind of sit back, listen to them, and allow them to be in this space. And if I know resources, I'm always giving my client like, hey, I know this organization does this. I know this church does this. Try to give them the opportunities. And I always say, when you're starting or you're thinking about working people, you may have an event and you may only have two or three kids come. That's okay. And then you grow as you, as you go. And you open up that opportunity as you go. And um, everybody's not going to follow you right away. But eventually those things, if you're doing, if you stay fast and you're doing what you're supposed to do, it kind of grows. And I tell my clients are, sometimes they're not ready for the help that I think that they deserve. And then people have a right not to be ready, right? We all, we all, we all develop and we all become right at different times. But just making sure there's a resource there for us when we are ready to come forward. Um, what advice would you two give to two parties, families who are in the same, same, if not the same, but similar situations? One party is looking to forgive the other, and the other one might be hesitant. What would both of you say to those people? So I would say definitely don't do it until you're ready and do it with no expectations. Right? I had no idea what Ryan was going to say to me. Right? Well, first of all, I had apparently I had no idea what I was going to say to him. So I guess it went two ways, right? So it wasn't that even that. So I would say go into it with no expectations, right? And somebody asked me recently, like, oh, you didn't go through a program. And I'm like, no, y'all didn't go through any counseling. I was like, no. Then I started thinking, like, maybe we need counseling. I'm not sure. I don't maybe we maybe we need to talk to somebody. Like maybe we like I think we have a good relationship, but maybe we don't. I don't like maybe we need counseling, right? Oh, maybe, ooh. I didn't even think about it. And people were shocked. They were like, y'all didn't talk to anybody. Y'all For us, it was happening organically, right? 
you have to make sure that one, I think that neither neither side should be forced to do something they're uncomfortable with, right? And realistically, when I talk to people about transformation justice or restorative justice, I don't really expect anybody necessarily to be Ryan and I. Like this was, you say you got out when? November 2013. So, so 2014 is when we first? No. So you figure this had been years later, right? If somebody had came to me in 1999, I probably would have been in the cell next to Ryan. Like I probably would have, like just because I wasn't in that space at that time in my life. So I don't believe in pushing people when they want it. But I would say is it may be if both parties are willing to come to the table, baby brother, it may be very important to have some type of neutral or therapeutic person in their room. Ryan had no idea what he was walking into. I had no idea what I was walking into. And we kind of just had made it worked out. I probably wouldn't advise anybody else to do that. Just because you're making a big chance, you're a big chance because, like I said, I didn't know what was yeah. in store for me with the mom right. and her. Yeah. I didn't know. I was just, yeah, we could have been awful human beings. We could have been mean to him. We could have, you know what I mean? Like he came and sat. If y'all, I probably want to eat with us. I probably almost called for it, right? So, um, like we met. Like I said, our first time meeting, we tried to do it in a neutral location, a place that necessarily wanted to be favored one And since then, like we've had a good rapport. But I would definitely say that um, if I advise anybody to do it, I would definitely do it in a more therapeutic setting because you never know what's going to come out, right? You never know what's going to be said. You don't know the growth of each person or whatever else. Um, I just haven't been, we kind of been more on the same page, which, and maybe because we were, even though I joke around, I'm telling this to me. Even though we were roughly around the same age when this happened. So we were kind of roughly at the same pace. But growing up in prison is different. So I didn't know what his response was going to be. Right? So I don't know. Any more questions? I'll just say you can't see it on that computer, but a lot of people who are putting their hands together. Oh, thank you. For listening to Clearly Quaker. We hope you have found this podcast thought-provoking. If you have questions or comments or would like to learn more about South Jersey Quakers, reach us at salemquarter.net.